Hello and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent here with my co-host Sean Cheatham, who is back after a short break. Um, you can check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. Uh, Sean just released an article today. It's very good. Um, check it out, theparticularbaptist.net. Um, also check out uh, the Reform, uh, the Society of Reform Podcasters, which we are posted on reformpodcast.com. And if you're watching on our YouTube channel and haven't subscribed yet, hit the subscribe button and the bell to be notified when any new videos come out. Um, and with that, I'll turn it over to Sean to introduce our topic today. Yeah. So um, Dan had posted out onto Facebook, basically requesting um, topics that we uh, that people wanted us to go over. And uh, one person, I think it was, his name was James Mitchell. So thank you, James, for this uh, topic idea. Wanted to know um, the particular Baptist understanding of who was Melchizedek. Um, so today we're going to be going through uh, who Melchizedek was. And uh, you might think that that's just a, a very obvious and settled issue. Um, in some regards, it is very obvious. But um, there's been a lot of views over the years about who Melchizedek is. Um uh, the Jews, for the most part, appear to have considered Melchizedek actually Shem, uh, Shem, the son of Noah. Uh, Gill reports that uh, both the Targums of Jonathan and Jerusalem say that uh, uh, that uh, Melchizedek was Shem. But there's there's been other views. Um, Jerome says uh, reports to us that Origen and Didymus held him to have been uh, some sort of angel. Uh, there's also some that say that uh, he was a uh, an appearance of the Holy spirit. Uh, but the mainstream views that you'll see today, as far as I can tell, is that, uh, he was a pre-incarnate, uh, uh, appearance of Christ, um, that he wasn't even a, a real person at all. It's just allegorical or that he was a, he was a earthly King that was also a, a priest essentially. So, uh, with that, I guess we'll, we'll dive into Genesis seven or not Genesis 7, Genesis 14, that talks about Melchizedek. Yep. Um, yeah, so there are different views, and he is certainly a more mis- one of the more mysterious characters in Scripture, although I think we can see who he is. it's He's not clearly perceived, I think, just from reading the account in Genesis 14. Uh, I think it's, it's one of those instances where you have to take um, all of Scripture into account as we're understanding who this person is, and understanding... Uh, the scriptures in a covenantal light, not just uh, seeing this as a bunch of cool Bible stories, but actually seeing them as unified in a covenantal sense and Melchizedek pointing forward to the new covenant. And we'll get into that in a little bit. But looking at Genesis 14, uh, we see Melchizedek come on the scene beginning in verse uh, 18. I'll read just a little bit of it here. Um, It says, then Melchizedek, King of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God uh, most high, and he blessed him and said, uh, Abraham, uh, blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed to be uh, blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and he gave him a tithe of all. Um, and then it goes on to talk about the king. So we, we see Melchizedek bringing out these... Um, kind of this this meal to Abram and blessing him. And it really doesn't say anything else about him in Genesis, at, at least in this part. And the context here is there is a battle of kings. There's Sodom, the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, um, and some other kings as well. 
that were fighting um, and Abram's son or Abram's kin Lot got caught up in this and Abram had really had to go and rescue him. Um, and we know Lot, uh, particularly later on in Genesis 19, just um, uh, not many chapters later, where he actually ended up living in Sodom and Gomorrah, which is kind of ironic because the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah actually were, um, I think, the ones pursuing Lot. Um, but he ended up there, and he ended up falling into some grievous sins, although it's, it seems that he was it seems that he was a man of faith, although a very weak faith. Um, he was a very pliable and feeble, or a very pliable man, um, and fell into some egregious sin. But God had mercy on him and most of his family. Um, and we even see Abram going after Lot, kind of in this guerrilla warfare state, to try and uh, rescue him. Um, but Melchizedek kind of comes on the scene in, in this, and is there's just a little blurb that's given about him in Genesis uh, 14. But John Gill, a particular Baptist preacher, uh, commentator, theologian, he talks a little bit about him. And he says, quote, Melchizedek was a priest, not of any of the Phoenician deities, but of the true and living God, who is above all gods, dwells in the highest heaven, and is the most high over all the earth. By him was he called to this office and invested with it, and he ministered to him in it. Um, and John Gill also said, quote, he seems to be that Josephus says he was a Canaanish uh, prince, a pious and religious man, eminently raised up by God, in whose genealogy was kept a secret that he might be in uh, this as any other things a type of Christ. And that's really where we want to push the discussion today, that he really was a type of Christ. Uh, I don't know, Sean, if you want to add anything to that. Um, not, not at the moment. I just want to uh, bring out uh, or put a question in the audience's mind right now. Basically, why is this little little section here in Genesis? Because it's it's all it's so small you could almost brush over it. Yeah. Um, as and you, uh, we'll see it's it's referenced two more times in the Bible. So just to leave the, the audience with a question for a moment, why is this here? And hopefully, uh, we'll, we'll answer that as we go through. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. You're right because of because of its brevity and it's just it's kind of wedged into the middle of an overall story about Abram and, and this war going on or these battles. We, we can seem to miss the significance. And this is the um, the advantage of reading the scriptures in a covenantal light, is when we look at how the apostles in, interpreted the Old Testament and saw these things, uh, they didn't see them as just mere stories or historical events, although they were, and they would have seen them that way. It was pointing to something greater. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that, I think, is where... Um, we have to not brush over these things. It, it's very easy to do uh, if we just see these things as stories or historical facts as rather than unified with the rest of Scripture. <clears throat> but if we look at Hebrews chapter 7, uh, Hebrews chapter 7, we'll start in verse 1. Uh, it says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Um, so we start to see, and, and I think in chapter 6 of Hebrews, um, it's mentioned, he's mentioned as well briefly before this uh, long discussion about Jesus and Melchizedek. 
<clears throat> but we're seeing this theology starting to be fleshed out on who Melchizedek is, and we're seeing this typological comparison, right? When we're talking about typology, what we mean is there's this um, analogy almost with the type, which is the representation of the fulfillment, which we would call an anti-type. And we see this um, clearly um, in different places, even in the book of Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 9, you, you see the sacrifice, the sacrifices of bulls and goats or, or the temple sacrifices being fulfilled in Christ's sacrifice, where the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. Christ's sacrifice took care of sin, right? And so we, we see this typological comparison. The high priestly role that we find in the Levitical priesthood was typed there and then anti-typed or fulfilled in Christ's high priestly role. All of these, so the, the Old Testament uh, sacrificial ceremonial system was not a means in and of itself, although it had significant, certainly had significance for the people at the time in the land. Um, but it ultimately was pointing forward and representing um, the the new covenant, what would be fulfilled in Christ in the new covenant, and pointing forward to those uh, eternal forgiveness of sins, that eternal redemption, and that eternal priesthood in Christ. So that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing this type-anti-type relationship here. And we even see that um, Abraham even gave a tithe. It said here in Genesis uh, 14, verse 20, it says, and he gave him a tithe of all. And the writer of Hebrews here um, says it was a tenth part of all. So it was a it was a tenth uh, tithe that he gave to Melchizedek. And this even, I think, became a model. And I think that's what the, the writer of Hebrews is saying here. It became a model for uh, the Levitical priesthood and how they were uh, uh, to tithe, in a sense. Um but we, we do see this parallel of Christ here. We see some elements of the king of Melchizedek as well. He had no parents or, or at least no genealogy mentioned, it says. Um, and this is, par I think, to s signify Christ's eternal uh, state. Although Melchizedek, <coughs> excuse me, Melchizedek isn't God, obviously. And Melchizedek isn't eternal in the same sense that Christ was. Um, the fact that there was no genealogy mentioned, I think, is is representative and typed um, and pointing forward to and representing Christ's eternal state as God. He he had no be he has no beginning, he has no end, and Melchizedek didn't have any genealogy written down, kind of representing that eternality of of Christ. Um, but we also see this this clear distinction uh, between Christ and Melchizedek. And like Sean said before, there are those who who think that Melchizedek was some kind of pre-incarnate Christ, um, and we would reject that view. Uh, we do see a clear distinction here in verse 3 that he was, it says, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. He wasn't the Son of God. He was made like him. There's this typology. There's a similarity, but not he wasn't the Son of God uh, himself. And I, I think if, and, and even uh, John Gill takes his view as well. Uh, he says, quote, some have thought him, that's Melchizedek, some have thought him to be more than a mere man, even the son of God himself, but he is manifestly distinguished from him in Hebrews 7.3. That's what we just read. He's made like him. He's distinguished uh, from him. And do you want to add anything, Sean, to that? Yeah, I do. Um, 
people seem to get hung up a little bit with the, without father, without mother, um, without uh, descendant, uh, that section, um, trying to basically take it literally. Um, and it, it, might, it probably comes from a good place, at least in some people, because we don't want to over-allegorize uh, the Bible basically into mm-hmm. turning into something that isn't historically true at all. It's only an allegory. Um, but we do see the apostolic pattern is to, while treating these things historically, also pulling out an allegorical truth uh, from them. For example, Paul in um, Galatians, and give me one second to find that again. Um, I just had it. Where are we? Um, uh, okay, so Galatians uh, 4, um, he starts talking about how Abraham had two sons, one by the bod woman and one by the free woman. Uh, and then verse 24 says, uh, which things are an allegory for these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai and then the one from uh, uh the one that um, is of Jerusalem. So he's treating it something that he believes to be historical allegorically to, to uh, present a, a spiritual truth. So when we read this, it's perfectly acceptable to recognize, okay, it's not that Melchizedek didn't literally have uh, no genealogy, but as a picture of Christ, um, similar to Christ, he doesn't have this genealogy going on. Um, so it's uh, it's important that we use the hermeneutics provided by the Bible to interpret the Bible, and that's perfectly acceptable. Yep, that's exactly right. And I think it's important to note, too, that this genealogy would be um, paralleled in terms of his divinity, because there is genealogy in the gospel. And at least I think Matthew yes. lays out a, a clear human genealogy of Christ going all the yes. way back um, to Adam, I think. Um so I, I think this is in reference to his divinity and, again, the yes. eternality of Christ. This, is, this priesthood is eternal, but Christ has no beginning, has no end. I think this is a, an, a, an attestation of his deity here. Mm-hmm. And that's who Melchizedek, I think, is representing, um, ultimately, is the divine person, the second person of the Trinity, not just not his humanity necessarily, although I think that's partly in view here, but more so his eternality in his divinity. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of the you can have problems <clears throat> if we talk about the Melchizedek or or any kind of pre-incarnate Christ before the actual incarnation. I think you can create some problems. Um, the The act of Christ being incarnate really was a unique view, not only because of the unity of divine and human nature in the person but also because it revealed the father Um, that was part and parcel with that act. It wasn't uh, like you could have any separate way to do it. If Christ was incarnate before uh, the allotted time, then he would have had to reveal the father because it's inherent in the act. Uh, Jesus makes it very clear um, in the book of John. I always see this in John 17, 25 through 26. Oh, righteous father, the world is not, known you but i have known you and these have known that you sent me and i have declared them uh, declared to them your name and will declare it that the love in which you love me may be in them and i in them uh john one which is the prologue <clears throat> to john where he kind of lays the 
the deification of or the deity of Christ. Uh, John 1, 17 and 3, no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son or the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So this declaration of, of the Father is coming forth through Christ the Word, right? The Word is declaring who the Father is. Uh, and then I think John 14 is another very clear uh, place where Jesus is talking with his disciples. John 14, 7 through 9, if you had known me, you would have known my father also, and from now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, I have been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the father. So how can you say, show us the father? You know, in classic in classic form, the disciples sticking their foot in their mouth. Um, Jesus is correcting them. But Jesus is saying that if you've seen me in my incarnate state, I've you've seen the Father. I've revealed the Father to you in my incarnation. So you, you can't separate the incarnation with revelation of the Father, which clearly was unique in the New Testament. So uh, saying that he was some kind of pre-incarnate Christ, even if you want to use the word pre-incarnate, I think creates problems because of what we've noted here, because you still have to have some kind of incarnation. Now, we're not talking about a Christophany or some kind of manifestation of God in or of Christ in a in some kind of way, as we see in Genesis 32, 22 through 32, where we see Jacob, uh, quote, wrestling with God. Um, I think this is this is perfectly consistent. It's not an incarnation, as we would say. It's not God taking on flesh and unifying two natures. It's a manifestation of God in some kind of form, but that's not an incarnate state. Um, the Reformation Study Bible has a good note on this, uh, this section. It says, quote, this mysterious man was a theophany, a visible, and in this case, tangible manifestation of the God who is intrinsically invisible, the angel of the Lord. So this is not the same as some kind of incarnation um, as we see, but it is, um, it's a manifestation of 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 God. Um, and you could even argue that, that Christ was manifesting himself here, or even the burning bush would be a manifestation of God in some way with, that doesn't require some kind of uh, incarnation. But uh, we do see Melchizedek um, as a real historical person, um, so we can't see him as really some kind of, uh, even some kind of manifestation. He's a distinct human being who has his own role he has his own life he's a, a priest and a king he's functioning in a real historical sense not as some kind of manifestation uh, i don't know if you have anything else sean you want to add to that um none of that i will briefly go back to um i think it's verse two of uh hebrews seven uh mm -hmm. where it gives the uh, translation of uh, melchizedek's name um uh, saying that uh, his name means king of righteousness and then also king of Salem. Uh, that's the fact that he's uh, king of uh, Salom, which is uh, Shalom, which is uh, king of peace. But um, in the modern era, I guess you could say, people have taken uh, dispute with uh, what Melchizedek actually means, the name. It comes from two Hebrew words, um, uh, Ma uh, Melech and uh, uh, Zadok. Um, which would lose uh, Melech would be king and Zadok would be righteousness. But 
Some have tried to say that um, Zadok is really a uh, the name of a, a pagan deity. Not that we have much evidence for this, so it would be something to the effect of he's um, the uh, king in regard to this, uh, or uh, they would translate it as my king is Zadok, this pagan deity. But we see very clearly from both Genesis 14 and um, Hebrews that this is he was a priest of the Most High God, that is mm. the true God. So it would be very weird that he would have a name in reference to um, a pagan deity. And again, there's not really any evidence that this pagan deity even existed. It's it's scholars trying to interpret something when they have no evidence. Um, the other uh, interpretation of the name is um, that it would be actually more appropriate to call, uh, say that Melchizedek translates as, uh, my king is righteous or righteousness. Um, which is obviously a little bit different than king of righteousness. And I think the problem uh, stems from uh, the fact that uh, Melchizedek, the way it's uh, written, it would be a little bit archaic, um, but it uh, in the archaic uh, usage of it, it would be king of righteousness. And a little bit more of uh, the, the time that uh, biblical Hebrew was being used, it would be translated as king of righteousness, but the archaic, uh, uh, sorry, the my king is righteousness, but in the archaic way of uh, reading it, it would be king of righteousness, which is why the uh, author of Hebrews identifies him as such. So there isn't uh, a contradiction there or a, a false fact as some in academia want to put on the Bible. Mm. Yeah. And it, I think that goes back to <clears throat> how are we reading the scriptures? Mm-hmm. We're reading it covenantally mm-hmm. and as a unified whole. Um, yeah. If you're going to attribute, some kind of pagan name to when it expressly says he's the priest of God, most um, of God, mm-hmm. most high, um, you're going to have some issues there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, we see the scriptures as a unified whole, not it pagan scholarship or liberal scholarship would see the scriptures, not as divine, not as inspired, but as some sort of um, conglomerate of, um, of Bible stories or, some maybe some semblance of historical record where they find it to be consistent with whatever evidence they have. Um, but we see this as divine and therefore consistent. Um, and because of that, we read it a certain way. We read it through the lens of presupposing divine revelation, presupposing divine authorship. So we presuppose consistency because it claims to be from that source. Um, and because of that, we see, um, you know, we don't interpret the scriptures in light of uh, man's whatever evidence that they might present. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that would be very strange to interpret that. Is that pretty recent, Sean, that that kind of interpretation of so, his name came out? For, in terms of the pagan one, I, I don't know exactly how, how far it goes back. Um, I got the sense it was going back to the Enlightenment, but it could be earlier or it could, it could be later. Oh, yeah, yeah, that would yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, the My King is Righteousness, I think, actually is a little bit more novel, um, but it seems to be the popular prevailing view at the moment. Now, it, even if that isn't the... I don't know if I'd have a problem. I don't know if that would change as much of the. It doesn't. It doesn't. doesn't. Obviously, yeah. I mean, I I go with what obviously the scriptures would say if Mm -hmm. if it is king of righteousness, but I don't think that would really change. 
um, in terms of what's being communicated. Because if we're talking about Christ as the righteous one, yes, mm -hmm. he is, and he is our righteousness, he, mm -hmm. 1 Corinthians one thirty. Um, so I don't see that as really problematic, but we do want to know, you know mm -hmm. if, if the writer of Hebrews interprets it this way, then that's what we're going with. Yeah, it's it. I was listening uh, in preparation for this podcast to uh, a, a professing Christian scholar and the way he was saying it sort of implied that because he took the view that it, it was best translated, my king is righteousness. The, the implication was there that the author of Hebrews basically didn't um, know Hebrew very well. And that's they, they had botched the translation, which is why I'm, I'm careful to, to make sure like, no, this is, this is an appropriate translation given the understanding that this might be a little bit more archaic way of saying it. That but. would be, that would be kind of strange to have um, the writer of Hebrews who was writing yeah. to a Jewish audience, not understand. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> No, the, yeah the author of hebrews gives very good understanding of what's going on in the hebrew bible um so it, it would be very surprising that he didn't know how to translate Melchizedek's name appropriately but, right yeah well that's very interesting that's very interesting all right now going back to hebrews 7 um we'll start in verse 4 and we'll read through verse 9 or verse 10 i'm sorry uh, now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who received the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brother, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the, by the better. Here mortal man received tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witness that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. And this is the the tithe that I was referring to um, earlier, that the, the uh, priesthood followed, right? And it's even symbolized that the, the priesthood was paying tithes at least in a sense, symbolically, I guess, um, all the way back through Abraham, because Melchizedek really was blessing Abraham and his descendants through this, right? Through the blessing that he gave was really a blessing to him. And this almost seems to be some sort of federal representation, um, maybe a little bit here, of the people that came after him in the priesthood, that they were paying tithes to Abraham. <clears throat> so we see this as kind of being an establishment going all the way back to Abraham in Melchizedek. Um, and I don't know, Sean, it, do some, would we, I don't know if our church would do this, but the 10th of a tithe, mm -hmm. would that be something that would be modeled in the church um, after this? Oh, remember. this, this specifically? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is this where the, the tithe comes from? At least the concept of it? I don't know if it's this specifically, um, because we, we do just have the, the tithes in the, um, right. in the Old Testament in general oh, oh, oh yeah okay. um i can't remember we went yeah. through tithes tithing what that means in the new members class and i don't remember if this verse was brought up in relation to that or not okay um, yeah i don't remember um tanner said modern scholar knows ancient hebrew better than ancient hebrew <laughs> yes ex exactly that, that's 
That would be kind of ironic, wouldn't it? Someone who lived in that time and spoke it, you know, would somehow not know Hebrew enough than the person who came 1400 years later. Yeah, that would be that would be ironic. Um, but moving on to verse 11. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood for under it, the people received the law. What further need was there than any other priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron for the priesthood being changed. If ne if necessity there is also a change of the law. For he whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from whom which no man has officiated at the altar. So the Levitical priesthood could not be perfect, right? It couldn't be perfect. And he'll make this point later when he talks about the, the sacrifices not forgiving sin, right? So there was, there was an imperfection in the, the process, not an imperfection in God and establishing it, but in terms of taking care of the sin problem and really uh, fulfilling those things that needed to be fulfilled, the old covenant was not cutting it, right? And he'll say this in the very next chapter, right? So the writer of Hebrews is really laying the groundwork for chapter 8, which expounds on the new covenant, saying it's a better covenant founded on better promises, and Jesus is the mediator of that. But he's establishing kind of uh, the priesthood. Who is, the, who is this mediator? And what is uh, the significance of him uh, being in this priesthood after Melchizedek, um, but it was it was imperfect. It could not satisfy um, the demands of the law uh, in total. They couldn't fulfill it ultimately. Um, but this is what it means, really, that Christ was established after the order of Melchizedek. There was this parallel between them laid out in the beginning of the chapter. Um, he's Melchizedek models Christ. And Christ really is the fulfillment of the Melchizedek order. He's following in this order. He's not following in Aaron's order, and in, it's even brought up here. He's, you know, what further need was there of another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? <clears throat> why would it, he's basically, why would it not be that Christ would flow or follow from Aaron's priesthood? Um, well, because Melchizedek was representing something greater and pointing to something even uh, that far surpassed Aaron's priesthood, which was only typological and meant to um, temporarily deal with sin problem and assist the people in the land, etc. Um, so it really following after the order of Melchizedek kind of brings out that again, that eternal state of Christ in his state um, as, as God and pointing forward to that eternal priesthood that he would mediate in the new covenant. Anything else you want to add, Sean? Yeah. Um, well, there, there's a there's a lot here. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, in terms of uh, what we see of the Messiah's office, um, we see uh, in the Old Testament that the kings are not priests. Um, the, mm. the Levitical priesthood is laid out. It's it's very clearly separate from the office of king, and that's actually something strange within the Near Eastern context, because oftentimes in, in the pagan uh, nation surrounding um, Israel, you will have basically the king both be king and priest. And we even see that in Melchizedek himself. He's both a king and a priest. Um, so it, it's interesting. But at the same time, you do have this, this foreshadowing, essentially, of someone who's coming who will have both those offices, right? You, you see the, the, the foreshadowing in Melchizedek and then saying that somebody's going to come 
Uh, and in uh, the beginning of Psalm 110, it says, The Lord said unto my Lord, uh, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Um, who is that talking about? Well, the New Testament tells us it's talking about Jesus. Um, so this this person that the Jews should know coming um, have has this office of it, uh, their, their king. Their, their, it's David's Lord, it says. But also that he's going to be after the order of Melchizedek, these priests. So it's showing that these two offices have become combined. And that's, that's, that's part of the role that the Messiah would, uh, would fulfill that he'll have both of these offices. We also know that he has the office of office of prophet, but at least in this example, he has those two offices. The Messiah must have both these roles. And um, in regards to his priesthood, I find it very interesting. There's another subtle, um, indication of something that the uh this priest would do in the story of melchizedek because he blesses abraham with bread and wine that specifically brings out those two elements uh the author of genesis didn't have to write those he could have very easily said that you know melchizedek fed abraham and his men but it specifically lays out bread and wine why is that well it's a, it's a picture um it's a picture in two ways at least that i see it uh as we know from the new testament the uh, bread and wine represent Christ's body and blood. So his people have been blessed with his broken body and shed blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And that is part of his priestly act. But also it represents the bread and wine of communion and that how we are blessed spiritually by the reception of those elements um, to the nourishing of our souls. So it's a very interesting picture of that again, like if you're just reading through Genesis and as a story, you have to wonder, well, wh why is this here? But God and his amazing capacity is of the author of scripture has, has set these things up for us so that um, people can read it and then see this, this wonderful picture of who Christ is. Yeah, that's exactly right. We have this, this really awesome parallel um, that we find between the, the covenants, you know, and that, really carries on here in, in towards the end of the chapter, if you look at 20 and 22, as a, and in as much as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, by so much more Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. So in following, again, this go, he's setting up chapter 8, which is going to talk about Christ as being the mediator of a better covenant, found on a better promises and expound upon Jeremiah 31. Um, but there is this promise that's been made and he's quoting. Um, this is Psalm uh, 110 verse four. John Gill talks about this. John Gill says, uh, quote, which well agrees with what is said in the next verse, the Syriac version renders it and which he confirmed to us by an oath. That is the better hope Christ and his priesthood said to be brought in and by which men draw nigh to God. This is established by the oath of God himself, referring to Psalms 110.4, afterwards cited in proof of it. Now, again, the, the writer of Hebrews going back to the Old Testament, interpreting Old Testament scriptures for us. And so this is talking about Christ, right? Christ is the priest after the order of Melchizedek, and it was secured with a promise, right? The writer of Hebrews has also said, I think it might have been in chapter six, um, that God cannot lie, right? He swore by himself, right? This is what 
I think this is referring to. They swore by himself that Christ would be uh, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, mediating the new covenant, mediating this better covenant. And that means that the, the covenant would not be broken. The covenant would continue. The covenant would be sure, right? Because it's founded on better promises that are grounded in God's immutable nature. You know, God does not change. We spent a long time talking about that in a few episodes ago. Uh, Malachi 3.6, I am the Lord. I do not change. Therefore, you're not consumed, O sons of Jacob. So it's this covenant grounding in his very nature that Christ would be this priest after the order of Melchizedek and really intercede on our behalf forever and ever. Um, and so this is the fulfillment of Melchizedek's role. It is Christ coming, sacrificing himself first, and then and also being taking that role as high priest, um, interceding for us, um, not only taking care of the sin problem on our behalf through sacrifice, but entering into the Holy of Holies with his own blood, right? And that's, again, the writer of Hebrews will talk about this later uh, in the book. His own blood would allow him to go into the Holy of Holies on our behalf and satisfy um, the wrath of God and wash our sins away truly and forever with his uh, eternal sacrifice. And that's really what we see um, in the joy of seeing these characters. And again, they can be breezed over very easily if we're not careful, but look how much we've been able to unpack with just this one character who's mentioned in a couple, maybe two or three verses in Genesis, you know, in the significance that he had in pointing forward to Christ. And we know that men like Abraham, they were men of faith. While they didn't see Christ fully, they believed in the promises that were to come and they were saved. And this was a picture of, of that promise of the man who was to come, who Abraham believed in, although through veil still believed in through promise and was saved. So even now God is slowly revealing his promise And our confession. even talks about this too. It's, it was revealed kind of over time, right? And then fully revealed in Christ coming as the word in his incarnation. Um, so this is one of the glorious things of the scriptures is we see this amazing consistency and it's all revolving ultimately around Christ and his work and um, this great plan of redemption um, that, that was here. Um, Reformation Study Bible says, quote, While most figures in Genesis are located in a gene genealogical line, Melchizedek appears without ancestors or progeny and without notice of his birth or death. The Holy Spirit has described him in a way that is prophetic of Christ. The appointment of priests in the line of Melchizedek is without regard to ancestry, since no genealogy is recorded for this line. So again, pointing to who Christ is, the eternal priest, the eternal one, ultimately pointing to his deity um, as the one who would sit forever as a priest. And then finally, verses 23 through 25, also there are many priests because they, are, they were prevented by death from continuing, but he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him. So again, this grounding we have is in God's promise. This is unchangeable nature, but it's an unchangeable priesthood. So we can have confidence coming to God in Christ Jesus, that our sins are taken care of and that we are saved. Um, and he can save to the uttermost. The 
those who um, those who are of the uttermost, we, we don't have to worry about any sin holding us back. We can come to Christ um, and, and come to him. If we come to him, we will be saved and no sin can uh, can thwart that, that if we repent of it. Um, because Christ lives to make intercession for his people and standing upon his work on the cross to do so. And that's this is really all about the gospel. Christ dying, living a perfect life, taking care of sin for his people and, and living to intercede for them. And we have that eternal rest and that uh, eternal confidence. And so did Abraham. Abraham did. And the Hall of Fame of Faith that you'll see later on in, in Hebrews 11, all those people looking forward to those promises and believing and being saved and, and having that confidence uh, in God and in his promises. Any closing words, Sean? Yeah, um, I would just encourage our listeners when they're reading the Old Testament to keep this this sort of uh, hermeneutic in mind, because this mm. is not the only spot where you'll be reading through the Old Testament and come across either a story or maybe just a, 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 a detail in a story that leaves you with the question, why is why is this here? Mm. Um, and I would encourage our readers uh, before they just brush past it to think about it, perhaps in the light of Christ. And um, see, is this is this picturing something about Christ? Uh, because uh, I think that uh, in uh, many cases, you will actually find that it is. Yes. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us today, everyone. Um, this has been a, a brief episode, but hopefully it's been beneficial and helpful. Um, and Lord willing, we will return next week. Until then, have a great weekend and Lord's Day.